Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me in the newest member of the revolving roster of guest hosts is uh, Daniel Muller. Uh, Daniel is a, a graduate of the American Film Institute, a great filmmaker and a great writer. And um, I haven't seen you in person. I God knows how long. Like, Yeah, it's been a while. It's been like three, four years at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we met my first uh, tour of L.A., um, I like to use Vietnam gar- jargon to talk about going through my times in LA. And what had happened was we had a um, someone I was working with, a mutual friend of ours, the filmmaker Courtney Stevens. She listened to me talk about a new movie that was coming out. And I was pulling at these random threads about why I was excited about it. I can't remember what movie it was. And she didn't listen to much of it before she said, oh, you should meet my friend Daniel. You should talk to him about movies. <laughs> Yeah, I did not. I honestly did not remember that's how we met. I knew it was through Courtney. I didn't know that she like specifically set it up. She she made a point about it. Um, were you graduated when we had met? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I was a year ahead of her. Okay. Um, I think I feel like we met at some AFI uh, graduate screening or some sort was where we first yeah. officially met. Yeah. Um, so you today uh, picked something that has been on my list to watch, yeah. and it's kind of miraculous that this movie only came out, this miniseries by a great auteur that's basically a long movie, only came out a year ago, and it just seemed like it came and went pretty fast. Yeah. Right? Um, that is uh, Nicholas Winden Refn's Too Old to Die Young. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the first thing I want to say about Tool Today Young is that, um, you know, when I was doing a little bit of research on it, um, I knew this, but it didn't like hit me until I actually, uh, you know, started reading all the reviews. Mm-hmm. And that is that all the reviews are based on two episodes. Like that's <laughs> what, like that's what was screened at Cannes. You know, it was episode four and five, which are great episodes. But I, I'm I'm having trouble remember what happened in episode four and five. Uh, five is the one where he goes to New Mexico, and okay. I forgot what happens in four. It's a little bit of like it's like a setup episode. Do you remember if uh, ne- did Neon Demon do well at Cannes? I think that had really mixed. Uh, response yeah well can typically has their reoccurring auteurs they go to and refn is definitely one of them so uh what one very basic thing i wanted to start out with is how do you pronounce nicholas winden refn's name (laughs) um i tend to say with a v uh like nicholas vinding 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 yeah (laughs) rafen that's i feel like that's how you're supposed to say it uh, no, no, I, I, I defer to you. I, I, I'm going to go upstairs and drink some Midwestern milk or something. Like, I, defer, I think, totally defer to you. I think the best uh, way to pronounce it is just saying NWR. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag by NWR. Hashtag by NWR. That is, that is the way to avoid any mispronunciations. So, did, did you, when I, I, 
you know, it was a big, he's a major filmmaker. We all, he, and, and when this dropped, I remember feeling the obligation to watch at least one episode. It it definitely, it's, it's up there with the, uh, the Romanoffs, the Matthew Weiner, um, uh, Amazon series where they're playing with the format and they have these, each episode is basically, it could be a normal episode length or it could be a feature film it could be a short feature film basically and they're playing with the length and it's 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 glad that they have the the restrictions of the format lifted for them but at the same time when i first saw it i was just like 10 of these and refin <laughs> refin is not a incident a minute filmmaker yeah. he's like he he plays with time. So like yeah. I got 20 minutes into one episode and it was like, it wasn't until you told me to watch it that I finished the series. Yeah. So we were in the same boat, you and I, where, um, you know, I'd watched the first episode and a half and um, a good friend of mine encouraged me to, to keep watching. Did he, did he say anything in particular to pay attention to what, like, was he? Well, I mean, the, the, the reason, well, A, I, I respect his taste as a person, but B, he's like very much into like um, films and TV that have like an occult side to it, uh, which is okay. going to be, which I feel okay. like is going to be like a big part of this conversation as to. Sure. Yeah. But, but that was like, I was, it really like piqued my curiosity when he when Will told me, my friend, uh, to uh, to keep watching. Because well, uh, I don't think I would have. One of the fascinating things, I end up watching the pilot, end up once all the way through once, but like I end up watching the beginning three times. And yeah. this is a reoccurring thing that happens, especially if you watch the show with good sound design, is there's so much good use of time and silence and sustained tension that gets constantly broken by a very very loud gunshot and the pilot has a distinct moment like 16 20 minutes in i think that first time i watched it woke me up so to be blunt yeah i mean this is you know um so i attempted to watch it a second time i got like halfway through but you know the the thing that's i feel like this is important for all uh nicholas vending raven films it's Mm -hmm. that you know you you have to there's a tone to it you have to like almost get into a trance (laughs) to watch it and i feel like like the rhythm that you're talking about it's like almost like a bigger scale thing that's going on like how how does that work in episodic form where you have to start it over 10 times um you know i think i'm gonna take the i'm gonna take his point of view and say that you have to see it as a 13 hour movie not to watch it as like 13 hours in a row because it would be a lot, but yeah, I really do feel like you have to like see it that way. I always have had the feeling that um, 
filmmakers, especially going for the theatrical stuff, have poo-pooed intermissions. But yeah. the and in general, when they talk about when they first were going to episodic, when mm-hmm. pre-peak TV, when they had to worry about commercial breaks, the thing is like a commercial break is a great act break structure thing that makes you come back to a thing. It doesn't allow something like um, uh, slow cinema or anything like that where you need to stay in a trance, but it still is a great, it's, well, the other, the other thing that I was excited about this show, really excited about this show and then blown, like kind of, I felt bad for not finishing it is I'm a big fan of the show's co-creator and co-writer Ed Brubaker, the yeah. big comic book writer. Had you, I mean, had, were you familiar with Brubaker at all before this? I wasn't really familiar until you brought up. I mean, I knew that he had co-written it, and I kind of knew who he was, but I wasn't really familiar with his work until until now. He had written like um, he was the writer on the first season of Westworld, but he's mainly a comic book writer and yeah. he, his, his big it, film people will know his cl- big claim to fame as he, it's a comic book story, but basically the second Captain America movie winter soldier is basically a concept he came up with. And mm-hmm. in comic book lore, he did a run on Captain America, a long run where he was ref or um, referencing a lot of great seventies, Captain America stuff where they had to figure out, they they bridge it was uh post Stranko stuff where they had to um they end up doing like spy mixture and sci-fi mixture and he was modernizing that but forever there in comics there was like there was a few set of people being the continued stories dead people you could not bring back from the dead and it was like it was Gwen Stacy um Uncle Ben and Bucky Bucky being Captain America's uh, sidekick in World War II who died. And Brubaker brought back Bucky and it ended up being super popular and really, really good. And what's also cool about him as a writer is he was working in mainstream comics, mainly for Marvel. He did a bunch of other stuff, including like he worked for Marvel zombies. He followed up Brian Michael Bendis on Daredevil. Um, But notably, He's really cool in the sense that he bucked the system and after a certain point left Marvel and only did creator own stuff. And after a certain point, he was doing comics like Criminal and um, most recently things like Killer Be Killed. And he's it's it's he's a very one of the, the the cooler thing. It's it's interesting him and Henry uh kind of hooked up like. Yeah. Like and he gave it gave Riven's movies are not necessarily literary or especially when you talk in terms of that trance you never get a sense that there's like a composed story that you need to pay attention to yeah. you need to go along with the vibe with it and he works with a really great writer on this show. So uh, I read a little bit of Criminal and the thing that stands out to me as far as like what makes them pair so well. And this might just be like, you know, an opinion as I don't know Brewbreaker's work that well, but it feels like they both play with archetypes, like, like very, um, like, you know, when, when I was reading Criminal and I feel like I looked at a little bit of his other work as well, 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're characters that you know, and he's playing with these characters that you're like familiar with. And in yeah. a way, in a way, yeah. like Rafen feels like he's doing that as well in his films. Rafen feels way more advanced with it. I mean, I love Brubaker yeah. to death, but he can be very. He's a great student of genre. And one of the cool things is he's one of those comic book writers that is very open about what he's watching and how this is influencing what he's doing. But Rafin is just, it feels, it just feels there's some overlaps between their sensibilities, but Rafin's in a completely different ballpark. So it's, it's, it's interesting that they're working together on this. Well, I think, you know, what I mean to say is like they complement each other really well, you know, like what Brubaker brings to the table um, are these like snippets of dialogue that are just like perfect for Rafen films that have not been, I mean, like, you know, when people complain about only God forgives, the main complaint is that like <laughs> there's like no dialogue and it's all just like, you're kind of guessing what's going on. I and I, and I, I feel like to, this corrected that in a way. I listened to this presence. I listened to this podcast recently where I had never heard this interpretation, but it was uh, Josh Olson was talking to someone about the making uh, somebody who was working on Drive and the Ryan Gosling performance, and Josh Olson was very um, hesitant to ask this question, but he asked, "It's like is the." based on the silence of the Ryan Gosling character, he asked, so wait, is Ryan Gosling's character supposed to be on the spectrum or not? And they were like, yes, yes, he definitely is. That was in the plan. That was, <laughs> and Refn works in kind of a silent film way where he, I mean, he's very non-dialogue based. So yeah, I, the, 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 the I'm okay. I want to throw this at you. Mm-hmm. Like the, the observation I had, I, I someone who loves Brubaker, but knows his faults, and first off, okay, I want to throw this at you. Rafin is kind of one of three working filmmakers I think of as uh, an heir apparent to Kubrick right now. Mm-hmm. I would put Nolan, Fincher, and him there. Nolan, I talked about this on uh, a few episodes back. Nolan, in regards of trying to make spectacle cinema that's uh, um, highbrow or at the very least pushing a, a big theme or big idea – Fincher in terms of exactitude and Rafin in terms of no one has Rafin's eye. His, his, his eye for composition is just unparalleled and is just super fun to watch. And so working with Brubaker who works in a very neo-noir genre frequently, one of his favorite writers I think is comparable to his comparison to the Rafin Kubrick comparison, which is Jim Thompson working with Kubrick. Jim Thompson, who was a screenwriter for Kubrick at the end of the 50s, but by that time had written Killer Inside Me, but his reputation over the years has grown significantly. And Rafin and Brubaker's relationship reminds me of Kubrick and Jim Thompson, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good comparison. I'd also like to add that, um, I mean, I had never really thought of like the, the Kubrick-Rafin comparison, but like you know, the, the jump, you know, from one movie to the next, Raven takes so many chances and it doesn't like always work out. I feel like Kubrick, his track record was obviously much better. 
but but raven has that same spirit of like you know it's like i've tried that and now i'm going to move on to this you know i've done bronson now i'm going to move on to you know drive or or um okay. the viking movie I can't think of any of it. Fall Horizon. Yeah, yeah, I guess Fall Horizon was the next movie. But it's like those three movies in a row are just so different. I and, I haven't seen I've not seen Valhalla Rising. Um yeah. I haven't seen any of the Pusher trilogy. Pusher trilogy is just completely style-wise different. Uh it almost feels like um Oh, what were those like high octane movies from the early two thousands, or the the early to mid two thousands? Um, Not the crank style stuff. Yeah, right? they almost feel like crank. Really, like, they're shot like that. That hmm. that's what I mean. Like like he goes from that to Fear X, which is like very Lynchian and you know not everybody's favorite, but but it's like again each movie he is experimenting and trying new directions and and to go back to the brew baker like like that was i i think that that really pushed him in a in the direction that he's needed to go the thing about brew baker i being such a student and being open, he shows his cards about what he's interested in. Like what's cool is um, he's a big proponent of the old style uh, comic book uh, letter pages, which is a genre unto itself. Like in the nineties you have, you can't, if you're a trade paperback reader of comics, you're not getting it. And like Brian, Michael Bendis, like he did it in his jinx world books, which he migrated to online, but um, he mainly pioneered it in his comic powers, which is a great neo-noir book too. And he kind of had this really cool, like stand up kind of, um, what insult comedy vibe to whenever people would write him in and Brubaker took that up, which was the comic tradition. But his whole thing was just like, Hey, he's, here's some great film noirs I'm reading. And, and We'll go into this later, but he yeah. has this really every issue has a great uh, if you read the floppies has a great essay on neo-noirs or great essay on films you should watch. Yeah. But but which I mean, it's one of those areas where him and Rafen probably overlap because of Rafen's website, which he just launched in the last few years, yeah. which I don't know if you wanted to have you watched anything from there? I mean, when it first started I got excited about it and then I tried watching a few movies on there. You did? You did go into Yeah. Cinema? Yeah. I mean, the ones that I watched were like really bad, like sea level movies, like not like fun, bad sea level movies. <laughs> well, I mean, he's basically made them public domain. Anyone can yeah. watch them right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, when a filmmaker does that, you know, like I guess Tarantino would be another good example of somebody who just likes to, you know, show their collection of films. Yeah, but Tarantino uh, brings in Chunking Express. Like, oh, yeah, 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 he does good stuff. But, Ray, but Ray, I, I, okay, well, I mean, you, you, I don't know. I'm, so I'm, here, I'm a, I'm a, I haven't watched any of them, so I shouldn't shit on them. So, so here, 
<laughs> so here's here's what I'm trying to say. I feel like, you know, for filmmakers who do that, there's like an underlying competition. Like of how can mm. I how can I show somebody a film that like nobody else has seen? This is how like can that, I yeah. this is like that extension that filmmakers are doing forever specifically in the 90s with like Cameron Crowe and Wes Anderson where half of their they they felt like they were showing off their CD collection or their record collection and yeah. really all they're doing is showing off how good their music supervisor was yeah yeah exactly uh i got some the titles on here there's um they were really big into a filmmaker named uh Curtis Harrington there's a movie called Night Tide uh, also on there is Burt Williams, Nest of the Cuckoo Birds, uh, Dale Barry, Hot Thrills and Warm Chills, which uh, Rafen in the essay, that Guardian essay that we'll talk about later, said mm-hmm. had, just has like is a movie that without even a sense of any good taste. There's uh, Ron Derman's Burning Hell and then another movie on the site, Shanty Trap. I mean, are these just like... The vibe I got, again, not having seen any of them, just kind of perusing the side, is just he seemed to be into low-budget neo-noir made in L.A., which yeah. is kind of a Rafen staple, isn't it, now? Uh, I mean, he's he's like high-end <laughs> L.A. neo-noir. He is well, not, well, yeah, no, no, no. It's, 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 in, in like, regard, it's like that way that, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark is yeah. Lucas and Spielberg loving their B movies. Uh, Kill yeah. Bill is Tarantino loving, um, you know, his favorite kung fu movies. I like you, you find this way of like taking your childhood loves or the things that inspire you, and you're like, let's give a high grade yeah. version of it. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, yeah, there was. I feel like originally because I think he does like programming that uh that happens from like you know i I don't know how it works really but i think it's like you know every six months or so like they have like a new program of films Mm. uh and it's in conjunction with movie right is it i i don't know i think so okay they have a bunch of movies i I, (laughs) not to make this an advertisement about movie but I like I'm that. Good with, I'm good with that. Um, <laughs> no, there, it's curated too. There's a bunch of like, um, I want to say there was an editor for Little White Lies on there. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's, I mean, I, I say this not having partaked in the good. So I don't, I don't yeah. know any, I haven't watched any of them yet. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely like right now in this moment, it's, it's definitely scratching the, the itch that is, uh, has not been scratched by the art house theaters being, or at least closed where I am. I don't know if they're like closed everywhere, but no, they, I imagine they're closed everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you, um, uh, do you want to go into the show a little? Yeah, sure. Let's go. You know, actually, before we go into the show, I want to, I want to talk about Raven a little bit, okay. uh, because, you know, when I originally, brought this topic up part of me brought it up because i feel like people don't give him a fair shake 
That is fair. Because, I mean, obviously, I have, we're now like a few, I, I don't know, almost 20, half hour, 20 minutes, half hour into the show, and I've just yeah. been shitting on him the entire time when he's obviously a major filmmaker. He's, yeah. I mean, the, the one den- undeniable thing, I keep coming back to him. We did an episode a few ba- uh, episodes back on, I brought this up about Orson Welles, where, you know, Orson Welles has that famous quote about a movie set is the greatest choice, a uh, toy train set that anyone can have access to. And the thing about Rafin, whenever you watch any of his movies, is the fun of filmmaking is instantly infectious. Like, yeah. just in his compositions, just like, or just like, he even if he feels like he's making this up on the spot, you're just like, um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a confession. I am an unapologetic big fan of Drive. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know that's not cool to say in the year 2020, but is it? Because uh, uh, I don't I, think it is. I think like people have like completely turned on Drive as well see, as Griffin. Here's the thing: I remember having a really bad reaction to my first viewing of it. And ever since then, I felt like in the minority. Like, are you, have you seen the Walter Hill movie, The Driver? No, I haven't. But I, I know that I know. You've heard, know. you've heard people be I like, heard. people like, like, like pluck their suspenders and be like, "Look at me! I <laughs> saw the." <laughs> yep, take their glasses and push them up their no- the bridge of their nose. Yeah, yeah. like I saw this movie. It's. There, the, I don't think it's. I, it was my instant reaction. I don't think it's fair. But please, okay, drive. D- d- so, so drive. I want to talk this talk about drive in the context of the time period that it like came out. And uh, I'm gonna say something that you may. I don't mean this like in a hurtful way, but <laughs> <laughs> which is the greatest opening. Because I, because I feel like you're you're like a fan of films like this, but you know. I, f- I feel like like up until that point, early 2000s to like about 2011, 2012, everybody was making, uh, you know, mumblecore films. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was the thing. Like all the festivals were just jam packed with mumblecore, and there were some good ones. Like I'm not saying all mumblecore is bad, but you know, I think this I- is totally fair. Okay, good. I didn't know if like, so I know you're a fan of some of them, you know, as, as a genre, it's like, (laughs) I, I I find them communicative and like interesting, but at the same time, there's clearly a pattern where it's just like put two cameras, uh, DV cameras on someone. And hopefully you'll hear dialogue you don't normally hear. And by the way, this is all just a, what a John Cheever story waiting to happen, you know, like, So, you know, when I went to see Drive in a theater, uh, I got really excited because it was a capital M movie. Do you remember and, what, Do you remember your first screening? Uh, I think I saw it at the Los Feliz 3. <laughs> so not the, be- not the best screen. Yeah. It's, for yeah. anybody who's not from LA, it's kind of like a mediocre screen. But it's still like to see that film on a big screen it was just like every second of it was like self-aware. This is a film. For 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 a reference, I end up seeing Neon Demon at the Los Feliz Three. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you you were in some, you were taken though right away with it. Yeah, no, I loved it. Every like the second it started, I was just like, yes, like finally a movie 
you know, which I just felt like I hadn't seen in a while. You know, not not a movie in the sense of like, you know, the IP blockbuster, like like some blockbuster, but like a movie that's just like so just oozing with style and so self aware and self consciously a movie, and it just think- gave me this like great joy. That was the reason I was surprised. I I don't I don't feel like people have turned against Drive. I I think they have. You know what I? Well, I have a few theories on why people don't like Revan, but um, the reason I think people turn on Drive is because of Only God Forgives. <laughs> like <laughs> that that is fair. That's totally fair. Like um, everybody is super stoked on Drive, I, and then like that comes out, and it's like, what the hell? I do want to mention real quickly that I referenced Josh Olson uh, talking about the the um, Spectrum Asperger's aspect. He brought this up in context of putting Drive in his top of the decade list. And he said okay. he said the elevator scene is one of the greatest pieces of film violence he's ever seen. I agree. <laughs> We're on the same page. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I generally think people have turned on it. It's it's an opinion, but that's the feeling that I get, that it's become, like, uncool to like Drive. That if you like Drive, it's somehow, like, become a basic thing. <laughs> you know you know one thing I kind of noticed, which is not a credit to the movie, but one of those things I admired was that thing of, like, Drive success made someone who I think is a serious filmmaker – like it's just one of those movies that like made money and made everyone take him serious from here on out, mm-hmm. especially in America where, you know, yeah. like they're like, we have to give him money for, for the next ideas he's has at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. I know it, it set him up for his career. Mm-hmm. Although arguably Bronson set him up for his career. I feel like that was probably the movie that like got him, you know, Bronson next few films. Bronson was actually my first experience with him and Bronson set the template for me where I say it's a 90 minute movie, like usually about 45 minutes to an hour. I am just completely riveted. And then suddenly it just feels, I don't want to say tedious, but it's just like, I get, I don't feel like it's going anywhere and the sustained doesn't last like I, I just there was a point in Bronson specifically, it was that point where Hardy had the makeup over half his face and he was turning side to side for camera. And I just thought this guy from a graphic design level, a compositional graphic design level is like one of the most amazing filmmakers. And that was just such a simple inventive idea that he was doing. And at the same time, what ends up happening? okay, it's not so much the the sustain doesn't last but there's something inherently nasty in in Refn's the worldview he's presenting sometimes mm-hmm. like it seems like it's not a lived in worldview and it it seems like it's rubbing your nose in it to a certain mm-hmm. extent yeah no he you know it's I, I think he is a filmmaker that does not benefit from the internet age. Like, <laughs> okay, that's like interesting. He's, he's, he's like every other interview, he calls himself a genius. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like, I think 
Lena, you know, it's the same thing. Like, like honestly, if if the internet was around when Kubrick was at his peak, I feel like people would like really dislike Kubrick as well. That being said, his films obviously transcend do any you, of his personal stuff. But do you think like, Kubrick would have been giving that many interviews if he had the internet? Would he? He would have. Don't you think he would have found a way controlling the like his uh, press release so he only gave one made major interview? Maybe, but I feel like the pitfall of of somebody like Refn or or maybe even Kubrick, because again, that didn't exist back then. Hypothetically, is I feel like often people aren't aware of what they're like, how they're coming off, especially people who are, you know, on that level, IQ wise. Yeah. Often well, don't like consider, you know, the the person, the personal aspect of it. You brought up Only God Forgives. One instance yeah. I had with that movie is that, have you ever heard um, the uh, Siskel quote of his, he considered himself a beat reporter for movies. And the idea was right. that a movie had to be more entertaining than if there was a fictional documentary made with the actors shooting them at lunch. And if the same actors in the movie were more entertaining than the movie they made together, then that was a yeah. reason he would. And in the only <laughs> God forgives scenario, there was a documentary made about the making of the movie by Rafen's wife. And I watched it and found it way more fascinating and captivating than the movie itself. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, although to be fair, um, and I think we're both, are we both mutual friends or acquaintances with, with the writer of uh, Only God Forgives? No, I don't. Uh, okay. He was like, he was, I mean, I don't know if this is okay to say in public. He was like roommates with Kyle for, Kyle for a Smith, bunch of years. Yeah. The filmmaker. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I didn't. No, I didn't. I oh. feel like you, you might have met him. You probably I, met him. Am I putting my foot in my mouth really awkwardly right now? <laughs> no, but I mean, I think you know and this is this is something that like uh may just be a rumor it may be true but you know i've heard and maybe we talked about this a little bit too but the idea that gosling often chooses to ignore dialogue in films Hmm. (laughs) were we talking about this I don't know because I this is one of those weird instances where I don't have to be specific, but I can say I have edited Ryan Gosling dialogue before. I've edited a movie or worked on a movie. Like uh, I, uh, that's I, true. I was uh, <laughs> I, I kind of helped out on a, a Malik movie, Song to Song, with him in it, and I remember thinking distinctly whatever reputational thing you heard about Gosling as an actor, I remember putting him in that pantheon. Like this is one of the greatest actors I have ever edited. He's one of those guys, like you throw dialogue at him. Everything works. You throw anything at him. It works. He's just like charm on screen. I just remember really not having to worry about editing him and really liking, I I never met, excuse me. I met him once, but that that's the kind of, but on screen, as I knew him as an editor, I was just like, I'm glad you're on screen. You're someone I can work with. You, it's yeah. awesome. Everything's going to be awesome. Well, let me clarify, because I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. Okay, okay, sure. Anything, I, 
other than like he's a great actor uh his performance in blue valentine is like one of the all-time great performances period in my opinion okay uh even though that movie has kind of been a little forgotten now it really has well it it should have like won awards I don't know why it wasn't even nominated for things. It was kind of. Did you did you watch the? Uh, I never. I didn't get in more than a few episodes in, but the uh, Sia France, the Derek Sia France, um, um, HBO show with Mark Ruffalo. I, I started watching, and it was just so dark. I it's was dark. Like having a, I was having a hard time with it. But it, it is it, ironic as we're talking about a very dark show. But it's it's funny if you want to watch like <laughs> say something like. Um, dead ringers next to it where you become conscious that you're watching a single actor do two performances and you think this it is a fucking miracle like it is just amazing achievement like it uh, well i mean the process of what they did right like he like they shot his roles like over over a year like six months apart so he could like put on the weight for his twin right i heard that's what they did that would be amazing. Honestly, I, I remember watching a few episodes and just being marveling that the fact, because there's some really heavily motion controlled, whatever. I don't know how the hell they did some of those shots. But I just remember thinking like, how did they do the um, five o'clock shadow on one shot and the clean shavenness on the other shot? Yeah. So maybe that's, if that's true. Holy shit. That is yeah. that's something. But No, I mean, that that's what I heard is that, yeah, like, because Ruffalo wanted to put the weight on. He didn't want it to be like a makeup thing. So, so we're, but we're saying that Ryan Gosling anyway, is a good actor. I'm saying that Ryan Gosling is a good actor. What I'm saying also is that I think the script for Only God Forgives is very different than the actual movie. <laughs> like, I think that there was a lot that was like left were you, out. Were you familiar with the script when you read the um, song movie? I was familiar uh, with with the frustrations behind the scenes uh, a little bit. I'd heard it like secondhand, but you know, again, just broadly speaking, the script was very different. There was a, you know, more dialogue and I think things were a little more explained and grounded. Well, well, cause the thing, the cool thing is like on, um, on, on, this show, Brubaker was there up until the, like the last, few weeks or a few months i mm-hmm. think and like like one thing i remember on neon demon i never read the draft there's a draft out there that's pretty widely circulated yeah. and i never read it but i would talk to someone who did and he was telling me that basically the last the third act was discarded and the movie ended at the end of the second act basically like yeah. the like last third of the script was completely and it's one of those things rafen like you watch a show He's got this vibe of like a silent movie director who's making this up as he goes along. Although he has, he's not because he obviously has talented writers working with them. Yeah. I mean, also the way like he shoots, I just, I can't imagine that like every single shot needs so much planning. Like, how do you do that? How do you do like these, like, you know, 10 minute tracking shots uh, on the run? like improvised and like you know i guess some well, people can i don't know well we should get to the the the, yeah. the the thing that like blows my mind about this show like so i watch this on amazon and amazon has that uhd option which i don't know if that's just a 
more color science space option or it's a 4k option but yeah. this just let darius kanji one of the best working cinematographers in the world yeah. is doing a 13 hour movie and he, to be fair like he's not the it's He's complimented by another cinematographer, Diego Garcia, but yeah. every freaking shot is yeah. a goddamn painting. It's just gorgeous to look at. Yeah. I mean, every shot is a painting and just like, you know, the, the thing that has become a lost art form, in my opinion, is just like, really controlled movement really controlled camera movement which i feel like um you know i I don't know like why we don't see it as much anymore maybe it's just because like we don't see as many like slow films and slow tv Mm. but is this also we live in the age of the dslr yeah yeah we live in the the age of the dslr we live in the age of you know, YouTube and, and like holding somebody's attention for like more than a minute is hard, let alone like, you know, again, for like a 10, 15 minute single take shot, which there are a lot of. There's a lot of, but there's also just not a traditional setup payoff on some of these shots too. Like, like there's so like, there's so much like i'm unfamiliar with raven's lynch refer- um influence but like there's so much lynch in this show well i i think you know this is this is a a complete when when i because lynch came to me as well and for me it's it's a tonal thing right like mm-hmm. every every scene there is this underlying sense of dread and again sometimes there's no payoff to that dread <laughs> but you know that that is the link for me to lynch is that like underlying sense of like something is off here something is like very wrong um yeah there's a there's there's a moment i want to say i want to say it's episode eight where i just remember thinking like there's this moment with um, uh, Parsifal's playing over it, Wagner's Parsifal's mm-hmm. playing over it. And I just remember thinking this is David Lynch using a phantom. <laughs> you, do you know what, which moment I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Are okay. you talking about that when he goes to the trailer park? Yes. And it's weird because like we have been so Such a good sequence. We've been so committed to not talking about the episode, the show we're supposed to talk about, the title of the episode. But this, and so I'm vague about like wanting to get spoilers. Yeah. But what is the nature of spoilers on this show? Like, I mean, honestly, there's nothing that can spoil this show. There's one big thing, and okay, I'm going to put a warning into here right now because I'm not going to say it outright. I'm just going to put a reference where, like, I've not seen a TV show do this since Six Feet Under. Does that okay. make sense? Do you get what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You mean, you mean okay. like the... No, 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 no. The more, no, like... That? No, it's more... Oh, okay. Do we this want... is like code. I don't I know how to... Gonna... I don't know okay. how to invisotext this, like... I'm going to throw this out there. I okay. think the things that are, like, easy to spoil... Uh, don't necessarily 
I, I couldn't, I didn't know what the meaning was of some of them. Mm. So I, I don't know if it's necessarily like an important spoiler. Like, okay. If anybody doesn't want to have this spoiled, I'm about to say something that okay. I feel like falls into this category. Uh, the aliens. Like, wh- like, what did that have to do? <laughs> wait, <laughs> like, wait, wait, wait. Do you well, do you do you think they were aliens? That was yeah, they were yeah, they were aliens. Like like after oh, the this here we come like on the, the on the ranch like towards the end. This is where we come right? into the ambiguity. Like, are I just I, did, <laughs> I didn't know if they were aliens or they were just like spiritual creatures. I assume they're aliens, but either way, even though they're just spiritual creatures, it's like what is the like what what is that? <laughs> Like I have no idea, like what the connection is. Yeah, I mean the because the payoff, it was cool. Well, but... the pay the payoff with that. Oh, I don't know. I see this is spoilers. I don't want to go into, but okay, because it's because it's we can stop. well, yeah. no, no, it's fine. It's just it's like the very final point of the last episode where it went, where it had been the one thread it had taken through the entire show. Yeah, I was just like, I, yeah, aliens is not where. I went with yeah. it because the fascinating thing, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but um, Brew Baker, when he was, I guess he would have been writing this or when they would have been shooting this, uh, the comic book series Kill or Be Killed would have been coming out. And both these have these elements of avenging angels who are these people who decide to be vigilantes to kill people that society won't kill. And it becomes a major part of the show. And to be honest with, Kill or be killed. I remember I only, literally almost finished the series yes last night. I, I I bought the floppies as they were coming out. The first issue, I remember thinking, it's this really weird hybrid of it's supposed to be like like Death Wish, um Breaking Bad, and mid-70s Amazing Spider-Man, where yeah. You have like a teen, like a post teen who's like trying to fight crime and figure out his life with girlfriends. But then the death wish and breaking bad come aspect comes in where it's a vigilante who's just killing people and trying to hide it. And I didn't get past the first issue just because I just vigilante stories and like the avenging angels sense of justice seems to me a crock of shit. It's just this like, I don't know. And like, that was the through the thread uh, that the end of the episode, the very last episode, being vague as possible, mm-hmm. um, came to. But yeah, um, the last, I mean, the last episode was um, <laughs> it, it. It's cut a little short. It's, okay, in, the, in, in, in a way, that was, even that though was it's a, thirteen hours, yeah. it feels like it's like. When you're scrolling through the like length yeah. of time, like you get to the last episode, and the last episode is the only episode under an hour. It's like a half hour, mm-hmm. and like there's this really. I feel like the thesis of the show. We need to get into. This is Rafen trying to make a a 13 hour movie about Trump's America. Yeah, and the thing about the last episode isn't the aliens or the spiritual figures. Or where it ends, but there's a monologue Jenna Malone gives at the end. Oh yeah, that's oh, phenomenal. There's okay, so she says at one point, violence will turn erotic, torture will become euphoric, and one of the greatest phrases of the times we've been living in in Trump's America 
hate will be rewarded and seen as truthful. And then she gives a she finishes out the monologue, and at the end, like end, she turns into the camera like Charlie Champlin's tramp and says, I on that day I will declare the dawn of innocence. And meanwhile, in that frame where she's speaking, it's a single camera thing where she's giving this monologue. She's she's vaguely indicting Christian America. And there's a Buddha statue at the side of it in the frame. I forgot about that. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, this is this is a show, you know, as as dark as it is, I also feel like it's it's you know, Rafen saying you have to choose which side you're on, right? Like this is like things, things are going down the wrong path and you can either be, you know, you can either be Martin and try to do better. You can either be Jesus and like go completely down the rabbit hole or, you know, you can be um, Yuritsa. Although I guess, although, you know, actually that's not true. I think he's only giving the viewer the choice of either being Martin or Jesus and Yuritsa exists no matter what. Like there will always be something that, that evens it out. No no matter what path you choose or no matter what path this country chooses. Well, that's an interesting distinction. Uh, Cause well, the, the biggest Trump analog for me is William Baldwin. Like he, oh, there's, yeah. there's 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 a literal point where like he does the Trump debate uh, sniff throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Um, there's a specific monologue he gives that's very very Trumpian. Um, I, actually, I, I that's not the most Trumpian thing. The most Trumpian thing is this weird uh, Greek chorus. Yes, they're like a Greek chorus <laughs> of like I don't know what the hell, but it's almost comical, and I'm I'm curious who the who wrote this like because like my favorite is i want to say it's episode seven or eight where you see a a bulletin board in the background where there's all these trump phrases of like fake news blah 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 but my favorite one of my favorite things of the entire series is the phrase fascism is goodism yeah Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I really like those moments, even though I feel like, you know, again, this is purely from reading reviews. I think, I think people were taken out of it and going back to the, to the, to the Lynch aspect of it, you know, having these like completely absurdist on the nose moments (laughs) that just, feel like very out of place compared to the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. I I enjoyed them. It was like a nice break. It was like, you know, I, I think I think there was like a purpose to all that being in there. Again, it's like, you know, like Martin is being given the choice, like you could be part of the fascists and your life is gonna be fine. That's a pretty extreme choice, though, especially like. <laughs> it's also very like casually presented. 
Well, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, just like uh, be a fascist. So it'll be fun. Casually is one way of putting it. When I was, I was yeah. already on my Kubrick trip with comparing Rafen to Kubrick. It really yeah. felt like Rafen was trying to make Trump's America. Like Kubrick was trying to make Clockwork Orange Nixon's America. Where, ah. it just, where it's like crime is rampant and we need to figure out some way of fixing this rampant crime that does not exist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I didn't think of that. That's... Uh... It, yeah, it may have. Because it... Well, okay. The other Trumpian thing is William Baldwin and um, his daughter, who is like... The daughter is honestly my favorite character in the show. Like, it's... <laughs> She has some, yeah, she has some really amazing moments and throughout the show. Um, yeah, yeah, no, she was easily, she was easily like, like there aren't, it's, it's hard, it's a hard show to like root for characters, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. everybody, like no matter what anybody's do, you know, and like Martin's a really good example of this, like no matter what good Martin is doing, there's also like so much messed up stuff to him. And there's a, that doesn't go away. There's a fundamentalist uh, messed up uh, just on the basis of their relationship, much less. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is is nice because the show actually like comes around to it and like calls it to, you know, calls them to light, but. But it was, it was easy to root for her. Like (laughs) she was the innocent, you know, the most innocent character out of all of them. One other thing I want to talk, what is it with the, the, um, the spit, the Miles Teller spit thing? What is the, that motif going? Because every time that happened, at first I was just like, okay with it. Then it started becoming noticeable. Then I started becoming cognizant of this idea. It's like, this is a DNA s- spot at a scene that of a crime that's going to happen. But it was... Uh, well, I mean, okay. So this is maybe a good lead into something I wanted to get your opinion on, which is the, uh, the occult side of this show um and this might be like a very far reach as far as what the spitting is but you know like uh in many cultures uh spitting plays a big part in in shamanism or you know different forms of it and so i don't know am i I like am i reaching here no, but I mean, I think in sense that like, again, not to go too far into spoilers, yeah. but you would point the fact that like the Miles Teller character is not the vessel that they wanted. Yeah, exactly. So how does that regard if he's the spitter? So he's the spitter and the spitter that that means that, you know, that like you, you like your power comes from your spit. And so is he giving up his spit or your powers? And so he's giving up his spit, but also like, I just think like the idea that they see him in that way and they mistake him for that. And then maybe, maybe he is that person and it's just like all of his past sins are too great for him to 
you know, escape them. Well, that could be another another aspect. There's um there's one specific Brubaker series that I never got too far into. Um oh shit, I can't find it. Um but it has to do with HP Lovecraft and the occult. And um shit, I have it here. Um, um it's not I was... it's, a, it's, a, it's not fatal. Oh yeah, it's fatal. Um, right. I didn't get too far into that one. It's funny because I made the point, the nerdy point of like pulling out all my floppies and trying to like go through all the essays and figure or not read all of them, but like figure out what or write down what they were all about. And Fatal was the only one I didn't get into. The rest of them are pretty mm-hmm. hard baked into like genres of film noir, superhero. There's a great, um, uh, um, Big Nowhere, James Elroy style Hollywood film one, The Fade Out is a great episode, a sure. great comic series. Um, but as a cult of the cult, I don't know. Well, I, I think you know, I, this is something I didn't know, and I, I found this out when I watched a little little documentary on Raven, uh, which is that one of his mentors is Jodorowsky, Alejandro Jodorowsky. That, <laughs> way makes sense. That totally right? makes sense. Um, and you know, Jodorowsky talks about Rafin like he's the second coming. What What is the basis of their mentorship? How do they? Uh, I I'm not sure. It feels like it's one of those things where like Rafin is just a really big fan of his films. Did they and have they any became, overlap together? Or? I don't I don't think so. I don't I don't know. I'm I don't really know too much about the relationship. It feels like like a a mentoring type of thing. Because you know, Jodorowsky uh, was also a big mentor of Kanye West too. Really? You haven't heard Whoa. that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, Kanye West. Kanye West made a point of saying like he's a big <laughs> influence, and you know, Jodorowsky kind of went with it, and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, Kanye knows what he's doing. He's, he's got some. He's got some magic going. Jodorowsky <laughs> is also just like a great. Um, um, He's a pretty iconic comic book creator. The Incal. Oh, right. The Incal is a big thing for a lot of comic book creators. Uh, it's not the, this is the thing that I want to say came out of the Dune adaptation, but like his, his sense of style and like it, he's he's a big comic book writer. He's actually still writing comics to this day. So that's a interesting uh comparison um so one big area i want to go to with this one of the last big areas i have for this is um goes back to the darius kanji cinematography are you do you do you play any video games i am not a big video game person but but is there a little bit of it or any because i am not either but i have i do play some but not much I mean, every once in a while, but not not to the point where like I'm overly familiar with. Like, I, I, when you brought, I'll, I'll let you bring up what I think you're going to bring you, up. You know where I'm going with it. Yeah, okay. I know where you're going. So basically, the last few episodes were written by uh, Haley Gross. I don't know what else she's written except that her big credit is uh, Last of Us Part Two, which I had played Last of Us Part the first one, and is you know it is a very beloved video game, and and from my experience right my very limited experience rightfully so but the more fascinating thing was um the 
the Refn has a cameo in um, a recent game called Death Stranding. Uh, it's also got cameos from um, Guillermo del Toro in it, and it's from this. I see, see, this is this area where like I'm totally cribbing from what someone else told me to say, yeah. but I mean, he was the inspired. Like I got the game because he said that to to like, but uh, Hideo Kojima, um, he does the Metal Gear and the Metal Gear Solid games. He's considered a video game auteur, but mm-hmm. I, I I didn't play much of Death Stranding, but Death Stranding. The thing that really struck me is that it's a. I go back into the. Do you remember that speech a few years ago where um, I think it was a Spielberg speech, but he talked about Lucas Spielberg both said that they think video games are going to influence this decade in filmmaking in the way that. Com- was it commercials uh, influenced the 80s and the internet influenced the 90s? I forget what influenced the yeah. aughts. Maybe the internet influenced the aughts, but they were thought video games. And then Spielberg did things like Tintin. And it was this idea of this like high CGI floating camera moving inhumanly moving past the part, like the limits of physics. And you play Death Stranding. And again, I'm not that far into the game, but that's not the cinematic standard. It's the design standpoint. It's the control. And with Kanji, it's also this like the color science behind everything. Okay, obviously we we already went into the fact that every shot is a painting in the in this show, and what I found fascinating is, you know, every Rayfin movie, almost every shot's pretty solid. Like it's just like mm-hmm. it's it's an infectious, great, cool thing. Rayfin is partially colorblind. Yeah, no, he's. I think he's. Com- yeah, I think he's like full colorblind. When I watch this on the 4K UHD or yeah. whatever format the thing I kept finding is like the midtones, like, and I'm not like, he keeps saying like, Oh, this makes me make high contrast images, which may, I don't know. Did you, did you find them high contrast images? Cause I found like his whole thing is neon pastels and it's always yeah. like conflicting colors of those levels. It's just, and there's this unified color science thing that I feel like video games are going to play into digital cinematography because it's like i'm a big sucker for digital cinematography and video games seem like they're going to complement each other well with that and they're going to filmmaking wise they're going to complement each other well i mean i think you know over the last like decade or so uh we've seen a couple of films that are like feel like they've been influenced just like the way they've been shot uh, some more obvious than others. I'd say like 1917 kind of falls into the <laughs> category of like a, a film that feels like a video game or uh, uh, what was the the Christopher Nolan war movie? Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk. That like totally felt like a video game. How, um, does, does something like Birdman feel like a first person shooter to you? Yeah, Birdman could like fit into that category as well a little bit. Um, yeah, I think... I'm, I'm like curious where it goes just cause like those films really only work on big screens. I mean, for me, for yeah, me, they only work totally. on big screens. Cause it's like, you're, it's, it's a visceral experience, right? Like when you're playing a video game, like you're just, you're getting sucked in 
or at least the movies that that emulate video games like it's completely visceral well you look at something like ready player one where it's just like no one's going to be talking about that movie in a while like a bad movie (laughs) well i mean not a bad movie but a forgettable movie well, hey, I don't know if Forget you know it. this, but it has a sequence in the middle that's based on a movie from 1980. So there's that to celebrate about it. <laughs> yeah, Spielberg uh, knows knows what the kids are going to like. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's in touch. He's in tune. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, let's see. I So I mentioned this earlier one of the last things I need to mention is um, this is on the Brubaker track. This is on the Rayfin. And as much as mm-hmm. I'm sure hashtag by NWR is an awesome site, a great kept secret that not too many people know, but only weekly comic book readers know is that Brubaker's comics always have the most amazing essays in every issue. Mm. And this is that area where I get to like, uh, I wrote this down. I need to go over my legal pad because I wrote all this down. But there, between his his series, like, you shall check them out. But between Incognito, The Fade Out, Killer Be Killed, or Fatal, like, um, Fade Out in particular has some great film essays. There's Devin Faraci on Peg It Whistle, who is uh, the actress who jumped off the Hollywood sign. There's Fatty mm-hmm. Arbuckle. There's Johnny Stoppinato, who's the Mickey Cohen lieutenant who got killed by Lana Turner's daughter. Um, there's Meg Abbott on the Frick, uh, the Black Dahlia. Farachi again on Jimmy Stewart in World War II. Burt Williams of the R Gang Little w- uh, Rascals. Aaron Errol Flynn's Sex Live. J- Joan Crawford's rumored stag porn films. Um, <laughs> then there's. Um, going back to another essay that um, we did an episode on uh, the Raising Cain episode, we talked about Ben Hecht. There's a great uh, Ben Goddard essay on Ben Hecht. Uh, Farachi comes back. He does a three-part essay of Hollywood on dope, including Judy Garland on speed, Robert Mitchum with pot, and Cary Grant with psychedelics. Uh, then Killer Be Killed yeah. starts out with uh, Farachi on Death Wish, Old Boy, Spit on Your Brain excuse me i spit on your grave and then mm-hmm. kim morgan takes over for the rest of it the great film writer kim morgan uh she writes every uh, every comic issue she writes something thematically related to it. so she does movies like little murders uh the naked city a co- uh t- there was a tv series of it she does a a case of two savages be pretty poison murder by contract which he asserts is a big scorsese schrader influence mickey and nikki the uh um elaine mate great elaine movie um big house usa born to kill who killed teddy bear have you ever seen heard of this the joseph losey remake of m yeah i put it on my list to watch right away uh the ida lupino movie the hitchhiker ida lupino i, I forget i think it was a certain point in the 40s she was one of the only two female f- filmmakers uh directors in the dga uh the cobweb shop corridor which you know that's mm-hmm. um don't bother to knock too late for tears fallen angel i think it's auto perimeter movie um yeah it's just i'm only describing 20 issues of comics they've been doing for the last 15 to 20 years, almost <laughs> monthly. And everyone, they're big film fans. Like um, uh, 
Sh- uh, Sean, the, the the big thing to talk about with um, Kanji is also that I feel like it invokes, probably not realistically, Sean Phillips, the uh, Brubaker's main go-to penciler. It mm-hmm. invokes a lot of his drawings, and I forget their color name, but the colors also fit. And Phillips, one of the first big essays and the first big issues of Criminal that I read that was like, I had never heard of this movie, and then went to Criterion is uh, Blast of Silence, the film more Blast of Silence. And a bunch of these movies have gone to Criterion and Phillips has drawn the covers. So Phillips has drawn the covers to the Criterion for Blast of Silence, On the Waterfront, In the Heat of the Night, Breaker Morant, Mr. Johnson, Sweet Smell of Success, Mildred Pierce, 12 Angry Man, and The Great Escape. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know and, that. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he's a great artist who... I can't imagine he formally or informally contributed to the show, but it feels like Kanji had to have been aware of him some at some point. So, mm-hmm. um, I yeah, maybe maybe he was hanging around set. I mean, I don't. I can't say that for sure, but feels like that's in the realm of possibility. As they say in Days and Confused, it'd be cool if he did. Um, yeah. So, did you want to? Did you want to get around to any final thoughts? <laughs> sure. Uh, final thoughts. Um, yeah, maybe it's good to like talk about why people should watch the show. Okay. <laughs> so I, I don't know if we've like sold everything. Out. Have, I don't have, know if we've sold the show. Oh, and, if, and we, if, if we were in a pitch room, have you sold the show? <laughs> and and you know the the reason I bring this up is because you know when I was. Like when we first talked about the idea for this episode, um, it seemed like really fun. And then when I started thinking about it, I was like, I don't know if I would recommend this show to most people. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. like most people, it's it's, it's a major. Like, the thing is, it's a major filmmaker. It's a major, yeah, it's filmmaker, a major filmmaker committing to a long canvas, or big canvas. Yeah, I, I think I think the idea behind watching it is that it's there's you're going to be rewarded. Like it takes it definitely takes like two three episodes to get into it to get into that rhythm. But like once you do, uh, it just the. I think there are like a lot of like really good payoffs and just, I mean, for some of those sequences alone, just visually, yeah, you know, it's again, you know, we're not, I, I think the only comparison would be the obvious one, which would be like, you know, Lynch's uh, last attempt at uh twin peaks twin peaks uh which Were, ha, uh, have you ever seen a berlin alexanderplatz oh right i guess i would also I, i've never seen it but i uh, i've never both of us it's have on never my seen list. it maybe both of us it's have been on my list on for list. a long time yeah i was just saying <laughs> like a big auteur doing a 10 hour plus <laughs> series but i'm glad yeah. neither neither of us has seen it together so there's that yeah so this is like the next like seemingly good idea for well, uh, for an episode yeah let's talk about Berlin, Berlin Alexander Plotz well I think it bears to be said <laughs> that like 
are we, I don't know for the people who love movies and quote unquote cinema, the 24 frames per second um, projected image idea of movies are seeding what is the state of the art to streaming yet. We're not there yet. The pandemic really pushed it. But I think one of the things that the questions I have that's this show kind of answered for me in many ways is this idea of like, what does a lot of episodic TV? I'm so sick of the AB plots on the most of the shows I'm watching. I, I find myself during the pandemic watching less TV and more movies, weirdly enough. And I find myself very isolated in that, where no one I know is doing that. And this show is one of those ones where it's like, no, this is a Cinemax show. This is a show that's committing to, like, do you have a 70 inch TV? You need to watch it on this. Do you have surround sound at your home commit you know which obviously many of us don't financially have the resources to do that but this is a yeah definitely helps it really helps and this is a show that's like look we're not going to there's no formula in this show whatsoever this is still this is still what you used to go for to the movies for when you're looking for I don't know. I've, I've been really down on auteur cinema lately, but this is auteur cinema. Like this is. Oh yeah. Um. No, this is the definition of auteur cinema. Yeah, and <laughs> show. it pushes you scary. and rewards you. So there definitely is that, and it does reward you. I mean, I think. Yeah. Uh, I want to end on two quotes uh, from that Guardian article we mentioned earlier. I wish I'd read this article before I started the show um, because there's one specific quote that gets to the heart of Rafen's style, a problem I've had with that nastiness I mentioned earlier. He -hmm. says, I'm not advocating physical pain, but I do believe mental pain can be a way to stimulate and reset the brain. (laughs) I again, I don't know if I really agree with that. I don't know if the social sciences agree with that, but I yeah. get where he's coming from. I get the sense that like this is a like a high level filmmaker who's committed to genre that can be very testing at times, mm-hmm. but at the same time rewarding. I get it, but at the same time, I feel like this movie between Brubaker and Rafen's intent is a Trumpian movie. It's about a movie about Trumpy and American. Yeah. So the last quote of his essay, Donald Trump was elected on the promise he'd make America great again. Older voters rushed at the chance to return to comforting to a comforting fairy tale, but they are not the same people who inherit the U S and have to heal its divisions. And the past was rarely this scary. And the thing is that quote He's talking about the hashtag by NWR website in the movies. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if he's talking about those movies or America right now. So it's a mm. uh, it's a really rough part to go out on. Uh, again, I th- I think like this show is essentially positive. <laughs> I think again, like like you know, it's it's very dark, but I'd also think it's like very hopeful that like 
you know, no matter what path you choose to go down, Yuritsa is still going to like be there to make things right and to correct things. Hopeful feels like a weird term, but that it also, I, I, I think I do get what you're saying where it says that yeah. like, there's going to be correction. Yeah, exactly. There's going to be correction and like, you know, you don't have to worry. I mean, like, I guess it's kind of oddly like, you know, I mean, it's very judgmental of, of, of us as a society, but again, like, you know, and nature, really nature, so, but yeah, like nature corrects itself essentially. That's my big takeaway from the show. Interesting. And so, uh, so yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Daniel, I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about this with me and getting me to watch this 13 hour <laughs> opus. So, yeah, thanks for trusting me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Won't happen again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is fun. 